This is Coda Radio, episode 189 for January 25th, 2016. Welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week, even when I can't, why, yes, folks, it's the Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. He's a freaking cold. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Are you snowed in right now? Two feet of power here. It's like it's like Scarface's backyard, except you know it's snow instead of cocaine. So this is, I mean, this must feel a little apoco- a little bit like the apocalypse to you, just a little bit, right? Well, the way it was coming down, there's a, several trees like right next to my house that were smacking the shit out of the side of the house. <laughs> I was like, yeah, the end is seriously nigh. Okay. Um, I mean, now you get snow every year, but I, this seems like, I mean, not to just talk about the weather at the top of the show, but this is truly, I mean, this has got to be putting a damper on business. Oh, yeah, anything that was going on today isn't, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I, I've actually been getting some coding done for a change. That's great. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I'm home. I didn't even go to work, and I, I work down the road from my house. I, I, um, I got to tell you, I, 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 I must... I, I got to admit, the, the no snow here has made me a little complacent. Uh, I did take a trip uh, before Christmas and went over to a place that had a lot of snow, and it is it is sort of like a different way of living, legitimately. <laughs> there's like there's just certain things you can't do. So, I'm I'm impressed that you're doing as well as you are. I, I, my friend, I I experienced another kind of extreme weather on my trip home from scale. I was in Northern California. As a tornado touchdown. Oh, that sounds like a good time. On the freeway, in my 12-foot-tall, at least, RV. Yes, you said people going to die? It was the scariest weather thing I have ever experienced. Uh, and we... Uh, we all had to, we all had to pull off the road, uh, and it was the hail was the the size of marbles at least, and it came down fast and heavy to the point of within a couple of minutes the entire ground was covered with not snow but like a foot of hail, and then the vehicles had to try to push through it, and then we like had to people started taking cover over uh, over overpasses because you know it's a tornado, uh, but then cops are like get out from underneath the overpasses keep driving. Um, it it was so scary. It, I I cannot tell you what it, it to be in a tornado in a motorhome. Now, luckily, we stopped about two, three, four miles down the road from where the actual tornado crossed the freeway. Uh, at five, the tornado was moving at five miles per hour, like a total jerk on the freeway, moving five miles per hour across the freeway. And it was, <laughs> I got to tell you, Mike, <laughs> I mean, the nice thing was, is once it was over, it was like a nice day again. And we, we actually, even once it was over, we even got double rainbows. <laughs> so we're like, wow, look at that. Like you can't, I took a picture of it. You can't really see it. But within, within, within five miles of uh, north of where the tornado was, it was gorgeous weather and, and, and a rainbow. <laughs> so it was over very quick once it was over. 
purely there just to intimidate you for like 10 minutes. Yeah, to, to, to remind me that uh, this is a serious business. So that was pretty intense. So I feel your pain this week because the oh, severe yeah. weather is not – at least you can keep working while, while in, indoors. That's good. Well, I, you know, I seriously thought we were going to lose power or connectivity or something. That's the big worry, isn't it? And, yeah. and then you're really out of luck. Yeah, luckily, we, hold, we held out. Then you go into battery rationing mode. And that's that's awful. So yeah, I'm back from scale. I I heard that uh, last week Angie did a great job. You guys, I guess you guys raved about me the whole time, which is wonderful. And and yep. uh, I believe uh, you both committed to uh, trying out uh, Ubuntu LTS desktop when it ships. That sounds incredible. I'll have to go back and listen to that episode soon. Yep. I I on the other uh, hand, wait, whoa, whoa, run that one back. What's that? What? Huh? I, I didn't. Uh, did you? Uh, He's a jackass. I, I thought. I thought Ange committed to uh, Slackware. Oh, Slackware! <laughs> it's negative in the no, I don't think that's. I don't think dimension. that's what happened. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. She warmed up the pre-show today. She stopped by. She she dropped off uh, Dylan, and uh, in the meantime, while I was scarfing down a hot dog from Costco. She uh, warmed those are the up. Best to you. hot dogs. No, those are the best mm-hmm, hot dogs. Mm-hmm. So I'm back, uh, and I want to tell you how committed I am to you and the audience, Mike. I left California yesterday morning and got home last night. I drove from I drove from South California. Uh, well, really, it was going to be California because I left. Anyways, I drove from California to through Oregon all the way through most of Washington to sit down right here and do the show with you today in one day. Boom! Hardcore. It's hardcore. hardcore. And you know what I realized. Yes, there was a there was a lesson I learned on the road that I think a lot of our audience could apply to their work, and that is try to plan a little less. And I mean this for you too. Just try to just relax a little bit and just un- try unplanning. Because if you can drive across, if you can drive nearly, I think it was nearly four thousand miles. I don't know. If you can drive around thirty five four thirty five hundred four thousand miles with no planning, other than I'm going to be here by this day and I'm going to try to be back here by this day. I think there's there's a lot of things you can apply to work in this matter too. Is there is some amount of planning you have to figure out some base fundamental things you have to get just to get things sort of lined up. But once things are lined up, it generally just seems to work a lot better to go with the flow and just see where you end up. Maybe sometimes you're in a tornado, but sometimes you're on the coast and it's beautiful. This what I'm telling you is a philosophy paradigm. This is a thought technology which you can now apply to your work. I leave it to you to figure it out. I can only lead you to the water. A thought technology. You like that one? Mm. That's good, right? That is pretty good. Yeah, I think it's sort of, you know, it might be proprietary. Get it out of here. But it's, uh, I love it. I have a link in the show notes to discuss more about that, if you guys are curious. But that's not what we are gathered here today to talk about. No. Actually, what we're going to talk about today, I think, is, is, is pretty epic. And uh, we may, you may say we're stepping in it a bit. But uh, we are putting object-oriented programming in and under the microscope and in the crosshairs. Did you get all that? We are doing that today. We're going to take a look at that. And there is some compelling, compelling evidence. I'm extremely curious what you think about this. Uh, Mike gave me homework over the weekend. Even yes. though I was driving from California, he gave me some homework to do before the show. Then we're going to have a little Ruby on Rails discussion and uh, some app code review blog posts from Mr. Dominic, as well as a bunch of other goodies stuffed in throughout the show. Huge show today, Mike. Huge show. And I, had, I don't know if you saw this, because I just kind of stuck it in the dock a few minutes ago, but uh, it's kind of hard to see on the live stream. I'll put a link in the, uh, in the chat room. It's a little tease of what we're going to be talking about on the, uh, 
on the show today. There we go. Oh, yeah, there we go. So, Mike, what do you do, say, if the snow doesn't let up for, like, a few days, like, say, a week or so? Do you do you get to a point of no return, or are you, well, are you it, good to go for a little bit? Yeah, it's already stopped, so, you Oh, know, it did? Okay, good. Yeah, I, I live kind of on a side street, so not exactly the first priority for plowing. <laughs> yeah, that is always a problem, isn't it? Or, like, the fifth priority. Now, is your power buried over there, or is it is it on power lines like it is over you know, here? We have power on lines, but I think my Fios is underground. Oh, that's good. You, you know what? I, I, when, when, when it starts snowing pretty good, I start in the back of my mind doing a battery, battery rationing and charging program. Right. It's like this uh, built-in subroutine that I have that I kick in only when, uh, when I think power might go out, and I start making sure everything stays charged. And then if the power does go out, there is a, a part of that I follow in which there is a certain like the devices that are best suited for those tasks with the best battery life in those tasks gets used only for those tasks like you got to be you got to be super battery aware when you're out of power when you might have a long ways to go so uh i'd be curious do you do you have a do you have a, a program like that that you follow when when you know the power is, is looming or or is out not really we just bought a bunch of candles and uh you know Prepared for it that way, <laughs> you know. There you go. I, uh, I See, have, we're not planning. We're not over planning. Where I where I now plan. live, I have um, two six volt batteries that are that are combined. So when the power does go out at my campsite, I don't actually notice for a little bit, and a, cu- mm. a couple of things turn off. But just the the system just automatically switches over to battery power, and an inverter kicks in automatically. And then when the when the when the shore power comes back online, there's an automatic transfer switch, and it just automatically transfers back to shore power. So it's it's pretty smooth. Oh my god, this is like watching paint dry. All right. So Mr. Dominic, let's get into the main topic of the day. Before we do that, I want to thank Linux Academy this week because we're going to get really going into this, and so I want to open up some room here. And I think if if we lose you along the way or you're curious about a better way to do things or you want to challenge yourself and improve your skill set, Go check out Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders is where I would like you to go to support this show and get yourself a discount. Linux Academy is a learning platform, and I really mean that in every sense of the word, because they have great, great educators that are available when you need them. Instructor help on demand. Think about the courseware you're working with, the level of sophistication it is, and they're available when you need them. It's, it's really an incredible, incredible service that a lot of places can't compete with, especially for the, with expertise at this type of subject matter. Because it's really anything around Linux. It's not just Linux. It's all of the open source tools. From the fundamentals of how you use the base platform to how you build cool things on top of it, how you manage it, and how you get it to do more. With containers, with virtualization, with AWS, if you want to get into the Red Hat thing, if you want to do the DevOps thing, if you want to do the OpenStack thing, right? They've got things for those things at linuxacademy.com slash coders. 2,115 videos where you can obtain experience, download comprehensive study guides, spin up virtual machines on demand when you need them, and SSH into them with 7 plus Linux distributions to choose from. Oh, not only does it set the virtual machine to that distro, it also automatically adjusts the courseware to match that distribution because they're slick. Scenario-based labs means you actually work with the technology in a real-world scenario, and that gives you the confidence to walk away with that to know what the hell you're doing. That makes it so much easier when you have to actually go do the work in the real world. And remember, with instructor help available... When you're doing that scenario-based lab, you can get real advice. They have a great community. They have systems available for people with very limited amount of time. I know a lot of us are very busy, especially those of us who have kids or you have a small business or, oh, I don't know. It's the holidays. I mean, it's really anything. Birthdays, right? Like, there just comes times where we get busy. 
Link's Academy is aware of that. There's a way to get value from that. They have an availability planner that allows you to say when you're available. You know, I'm going to be available on Monday at 6 for, for a couple hours. You know, stuff like that. They'll automatically generate courseware for that and work with you. And then, you know, if you have just even just two minutes, there's nuggets out there that Linux Academy makes available that just deep dive into a single topic. Some of them are a few minutes long. Some of them about an hour long. They have graded server exercises. You log into a lab server and perform a specific task. And then they'll automatically grade your action so you can see how well you did. It's really cool. Just go to linuxacademy.com slash coders and check them out. And maybe you got a chance to say hi to Anthony at scale. They had a booth at scale because they're getting seriously. They have established themselves. They are getting to this position where they are the premier platform to learn this stuff. I think it's really cool to watch them grow. They've constantly added new features. They just had a live event where they announced new features earlier this month. It's always getting better. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. So, Mr. Dominic, you linked to a super, super, super good video. Well, I, I say that in terms of production. Uh, <laughs> oh. No, 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 no. Oh. Uh, what do you think about me playing like the first 30 seconds of it uh, just to sort of set it up? Because the guy just like really, I mean, it, it, it. is really well stated in the first 30 seconds. So I'll play Get this it. to sort of set up the topic here. And uh, we'll have a link to the full video in the show I notes. I that this video is probably the most important programming video you're ever going to watch. It's partly because what I'm going to tell you is distinctly a minority position among programmers. Probably 5% or under programmers will tell you that definitively object-oriented programming is just not a good idea and in fact is going to lead you astray. Uh, maybe you'll have another 20-30% of programmers who will hem and haw and say that it has some virtues and some weaknesses and it might be better applied to some problems than others. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you definitively no, object-oriented programming doesn't fit any problem and you shouldn't take it seriously. So that's... You know, a uh, a bold statement. <laughs> and, uh, Mike, I know you've worked for ages with Objective-C. And when you sent me this video and said, here's some homework for tonight, when that was the opening sentence to this video, I thought, holy crap, I have no idea what's going to come from Mike. Uh, and he goes through and basically does a takedown in a way that, now, as somebody who's, you know, not super familiar with object-oriented programming, to me, it seems he does uh, an incredible takedown. And I have a couple of clips I could play unless you want to open with something. I grabbed only two clips, and they're pretty short. That I think are really great, but my initial reaction when I saw that was Mike must be cooking up something. Um, well, you know, what? actually, go ahead and uh, play the clips. I'm gonna, I might be surprising today. Okay, so this is one of them that really resonated with me, and it's about seven minutes or so into the clip, into the video, and uh, this to me struck me as really something. Is he talks about how object oriented has led to generations trying to circle a square with great ideas. That are ripped, that are wrapped in sort of like a language mysticism. It's also very natural that as we build larger and larger systems and complex things, as much as possible, we want simple rote rules to guide us. Object oriented programming seemed to present a unit of abstraction and a set of guidelines whereby we could incrementally accrete larger and larger systems. This line of thinking is what led us to patterns and then the so called solid principles and dependency injection and test driven development and all this stuff, which has subsequently been piled on by many people who insist that this is now the one true way to do object-oriented programming. But to me, all these best practices represent band-aids. They are compensation for the fact that the original vision of object-oriented programming has never panned out, 
And every few years, there's a new ideology in town about how we actually do object-oriented programming for reals this time. It's very easy to miss this dynamic. I know I did for several years because I think within all of these addendums to object-oriented programming, there, there's lots of mystical speech dancing around genuine insights, but it's not quite cohesive. Object-oriented programming feels like this circle which we've been trying to square for over a generation now. That really struck a chord with me. Boom. All right, so there's, there's just a lot of meat on this plate, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to keep going, or do you want to, or should I spoil the meal? Uh, okay, I got one more. One more, because one more. to one me, more. this seems like it sort of rocks the boat on the whole idea. Uh, and really, and if you sound, if you listen to him, he sounds like, well, when you really, if you were to take um, the idea and the rules of object-oriented programming seriously, you have to follow it this way. And no one does that. And specifically, it's how you end up sharing state. I'm going to play a little and bit. There's an even deeper consequence, which is that if an object is sending messages to another, that other object is part of the first object's private state. And by the principle of encapsulation, an object should be responsible for all the objects which it sends messages to. This should be obvious if you consider that messages indirectly read and modify state. When B sends a message to A here, it's messing with the state of A. Indirectly, sure, but it's still messing with its state. And so what happens when other objects come along and send messages to that same object, what's happening here? We have shared state. It's hardly any different than if you had a single global variable being shared by, say, 10 functions. If you have an object receiving messages from 10 other objects, those objects are all effectively tied together because they're implicitly sharing this state. Sure, the interactions with that state are indirect through public methods, but those methods are providing very trivial kinds of coordination of the state. You can impose rules through the accessor methods like saying, oh, if you access this field, it's a number, well, you can only increment that number. You can't mutate it in any other way. Fine, but it's a very trivial kind of protection. The hard problems of shared state are much, much deeper. Where in the system of 10 objects all sharing the state is the real coordination? And the answer is there isn't any. As soon as you have objects being shared, encapsulation just flies out the window. So if we're taking encapsulation seriously, the only real way to structure a program, to structure our objects as a graph, is not as a freeform graph, but as a strict hierarchy. At the top of our hierarchy, we have an object representing effectively the whole program. It's our god object, and that has its direct children, which represent the subcomponents, and those children in turn have their own subcomponents, and so on down the line. And each object in the hierarchy is responsible for its direct children. And the messages being passed strictly only ever go from parent to their direct child. The god object here, for example, is not supposed to reach down to its grandchild. It has to do all of its interactions with this grandchild indirectly through the grandchild's parent. Otherwise, who really is responsible for that object? Who's managing its state? It's supposed to be the direct parent. And so what happens when we have some sort of cross-cutting concern, like down in the hierarchy, it turns out, oh wait, there's some business that that object has with another object in a totally different branch of the hierarchy. How do they talk to each other? Well, not directly. Everything has to go through their common ancestor. For A to send a message to B here, it can't actually directly invoke any kind of method. It has to mutate its own state in some way, and then information about that state, that new intention of the object, gets returned from a message sent from A's parent. A's parent, in turn, same thing has to happen, so it gets back up to the common ancestor. And then only finally when we get to the common ancestor can that intent be realized as a series of message calls but not directly down to B. It has to be bucket brigaded down through the hierarchy. That is how you handle cross-cutting concerns in a strict encapsulated hierarchy. Obviously, no one writes programs this way, or at least no one writes whole programs this way. 
And for good reason, it's an absurd way to have to write your code. Now, I think, fun, I think strictly speaking, he is technically correct. Now, there are solutions to sharing state like that, like Adam from Vancouver, the chairman's pointing out, you know, they can have a database with shared state information. But right. fundamentally right. speaking, uh, it does seem like a core challenge to object-oriented programming. Right. And so I, I'm really curious what your reaction was, because to me, it, it opened my eyes to definitely some of the actual issues that some people constantly take up. And he kind of wraps it up saying you should never, never really use object-oriented programming. So I, I just want to hit that that point, right? And if you had the infographic on the t- screen before, can you just bring that back up? Mm, yes, sir. Sure. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I will stand by zooming and enhancing, Mr. Dominic. Oh, my God. Thank you, Penelope from NCIS. <laughs> right, can, can I ask Chris real quick? Uh-huh. Right, do you have pigtails right now? I could. I got enough hair. Let me tell you. Oh, I haven't, I haven't, okay. All right. Yeah. So, okay. Left side of the screen, the OO user's claim. Makes sense, right? Right. You'd be linear from A to C. If C needs to talk to A, it needs to talk to B, and B talks to A, right? I think you have like a pig and a cat there or something or a goat, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, The right side is what actually happens. Now, I'm going to inadvertently defend PHP real quick. Oh, oh geez. Let me – hold on. Let me sit down. This is like the chart I would make if I was criticizing PHP. <laughs> what PHP developers claim, what PHP developers actually do. That but is true. That is true. This problem isn't unique to OO. I mean, sure. A lot of his argument, and we're not going to play the whole video on the air because we're just not. But you can watch the whole video if you're curious. Yeah, go watch it on YouTube. It's actually very good. I agree with a lot of his arguments that OO is super easy to abuse. Yeah. I would even go as far as to say as he's right. No one actually does OO the way, you know, the white papers from the 60s say you should do OO because that would be a huge pain in the ass and no one would be able to read it, right? Um, I would also give him one more thing. He talks a lot about the history of OO and, and Java and how it's related to – yeah. You know. His 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 he opens with a with a conversation about Java and why it got such so much popularity in a way that I, it, it resonated is very true for me. Um, and you know he covers a little bit of history with the Windows platform and some of the some of the issues that it, it caused. It sort of spurred people on to want to try out Java, and uh, it, it it that to me was a great recap because you know having lived that and sort of semi witnessing it but not putting all the pieces together his recap which was about 5 minutes long was super great i thought it was super great on how you know legitimately oo solves a lot of problem you know just jumping to adam in the chat yay pure procedural code is freaking terrible right? <laughs> i mean yeah at some point you need data structures that are um you know Maybe objects is the wrong word, but you need you need a data structure. Well, no, that's an object, right? Now, there are mm-hmm. anti-patterns that we see in a lot of object-oriented programming. The ninja factory, factory, factory helper. Right. Right. He also talks a little bit about how there you end up sort of in these moral quandaries about how you should structure things. Uh, more so with uh, O than you would in, in in other cases, and I I don't think that's true. Yeah, I was wondering I, what your thoughts were. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I mean, right now the new sexiness is there's two things I'm saying a lot, right? Um, sort of rea- quote reactive programming, mm. which probably isn't super relevant to this debate, mm. but I just don't like it, and I just want to throw this out there. Um, people are doing a lot of weird contortions to make that work under the hood. I'm just gonna say it, right? Like. Uh, the other thing would be, you know, 
and what he does mention, but totally sidesteps functional programming, mm-hmm. which is apparently the new sexiness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the tenets of a good functional program, which I, by the way, agree is a good thing to strive for, right, is are also shared tenets with a good OO program. I would even take you a step further and say, if you're sitting down and saying, gee, Chris, I'm going to write this, uh, you know, this in a functional way or an OO or a, you've already lost, right? You should be using the techniques that make sense for what you're doing. Now, sharing global state is generally bad. But let me give you a common case that's, you know, in just about everything I've ever written where it's good. You need to have some sort of global session object for your iOS app. Well, in that case, something that's also bad called a singleton probably makes sense, mm-hmm. right? A, a singleton user for the current user to say things like his picture, if it's a social thing, or his username, or whatever crap that you need all over the place. Right. <laughs> I mean, Which is just, pretty common. Right. And, oh, you've created a global. You've created, a, you know, you've created an object, that, and it's a singleton. It's never released. But the practical maintainability of just giving in and doing that versus... I'm going to do all these weird, you know, per- mathematically perfect but really contorted ways to avoid having sh- shared state or global state. It doesn't make sense. What did you think about his comment that uh, humans have invented a lot of uh, insights and yet mysticism around managing the way you develop object-oriented programming – the way you do object-oriented programming, the way you not, – not how, what you write but the way you do it. And and that these are really band-aids to fix a bigger problem. Well, I would argue, what is the problem you're trying to fix, right? Is the problem you're trying to fix that before OO, before Java, before any of this stuff, it took forever and a larger team of programmers to write anything of significance up to the level that we would write today? Then I would say, you know, Java did a great job there. It still yeah. is doing a good job. Right. To me, it te- to me, it seems like these are more like solving human problems. Uh, well, and, I, and the other thing is, you know, you can spend literally months architecting the perfect, uh, <laughs> perfect solution. Yeah, analysis paralysis and design right. design st- uh, uh, stagnation that can last forever and ever and ever. The reality is your requirements are going to change. And I just want to jump to the chat. Uh, a gate, I hope I said that right. Um, he's right. State, you're always going to need some kind of state. Mm-hmm. Whether you're going to hide that state in a database and just pretend and do database queries. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't need to do that and you're just going to hold it in memory, mm-hmm. you need state. State is a fact of life. Right now, my state is sitting in a black faux leather chair talking to you on a microphone like a nerd. Because mm-hmm. we're both nerds. Mm-hmm. Your state is living in the woods eating rats. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a state, right? Mostly squirrels. Oh, well, I hear they're tasty. Yeah, you know what? It's the, it's, uh, it's the tails. Really chewy. Nice. So there is one – I think the problem – with this video, and I actually agree with almost every every point he makes, but the conclusion he draws, I think, is way too broad. Mm. You know, should you avoid, um, you know, if you have like an A, B, C, D situation, D and C being able to mutate A without B knowing it? Sure. Yeah. You should probably do that. Should you Should you pretty much always pass in your parameters into the method instead of relying on some external state mm-hmm. to get the data you need? Yeah, yeah. But that seems like one of those things that it's going to totally depend on the job of the application. And well, these are just like little good housekeeping things where you avoid. Yeah. You know, is it a code smell if you have a bunch of freaking globals running around? <laughs> right. Your code? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I, I guess that's a pretty good way to put it. Is it's a code smell? It doesn't smell so good. <laughs> right. But you know, the conclusion of oh, therefore doing anything oh is bad. 
seems crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, and it gets crazier because, you know, I would agree to a point that there is such a thing as too much OO, right? Mm. For instance, if you're if you're just reading something off a network or you're reading something off a file, it doesn't need to be in the network helper, 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 factory, cousin, cousins, third sister's, eighth cousin factory, right? You can just freaking do that in a procedure, write it in a function, and go for it. But, you know, objects give you some nice structure to what you're doing. For instance, maybe you do want to have a network manager class that deals with your whole API. Maybe you wrote something that in- integrates with, I don't, I don't know, GitHub. And also Bitbucket, and you want a GitHub manager, Bitbucket manager mm-hmm. to totally separate those concerns. And I would argue that those are two legitimate concerns in that example that are worth separating. Um, I'll stop ranting. Europe. Well, here's my here's my sort of takeaways. He made some good points um, that I uh, I hadn't really since I don't have a lot of experience with it hadn't really considered before, and I, I really do appreciate the video for that. But my takeaway is. He try, he struggles in the video to sort of answer. Well, if if it's if if oh it's so awful, then why are we twenty years plus into it? Right? That I mean, and when I say that, I mean twenty years of like really a lot of dogma, a lot of use, a lot of schooling about it. Like it's really established, right? We are into it now. And if it, it, why why would that be the case? And he speculates a few different reasons. And one of the things he speculates is that management came along one day and said, well, you know what? We want developers to be replaceable and we want components to be modularized so that way we can have certain people work on certain modules and then we'll have reusable, interchangeable code and it's going to be this magical thing. And then he kind of has some arguments against it, but he never really can give you a good compelling case as to why it's been so popular for so long. And when unfortunately, this is a logic loop that the smartest, most brilliant geeks can get caught in. A lot of them are sitting on the Linux desktop right now and completely fail to understand why no one would ever want to run the Linux desktop. Or some of them are so convinced that Mozilla and Firefox are so necessary to the future of the web, they could never grok why you might want to use Chrome, and they'll even right. get mad at you if you use it, right? These, they're brilliant people, but they get trapped up in a, a, a logic loop of their own dogma. If you step out for a second and look at it, there must be compelling reasons that it has been so successful for so long. And one of the largest platforms now on, connected to the internet is a wash in object-oriented based programming. So when you know, I look at this, I think the market has spoken. There is obviously valid merits. And while, yes, there are detractions, anything has detractions. Uh, so it, to me, it seems like what happened was, and this is, I, don't know, I do not mean any disparity on the video guy because I think it's a great video. He, he, he drank the Kool-Aid so seriously that he got into the religion of OO, right? He got into let's follow the rules, let's design it correctly. And then he built himself an empire that was a complete mess. And I think it, he got burned by it. Well, you know, having been there in the good old Java days, um, I, I can tell you that, you know, drawing out your UML chart was beaten into you, right? Mm. <laughs> Modeling your objects was kind of something you did, and, and I, I don't know that that's so common anymore. Having said that, I did one of, we did one of those like four weeks ago. But I, see, here's the problem. I think if this video's title was simply, Don't Be Bad at OO. Hmm. It would be a perfect video because the problem is his replacement isn't practical. And and let me tell you why it's not practical. If you don't conform to what the majority, um, you know, standards, accepted standards are, someone someday is going to review your code. 
Now, that may be in a friendly setting of an internal code review. That could be in a hostile setting of, you know, you get fired for a project, another vendor comes in and wants to look at it, right? And if you're doing all this crazy stuff just to avoid, you know, being object-oriented, one, your code's not maintainable, or is likely not maintainable. And two, there's kind of safety in numbers, right? Like, if it ever came down to a problem, you, you know, just by using relatively accepted standards, you protect yourself. Whereas if you're doing your own crazy thing, you're kind of alone in the woods. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, Which is sometimes secret sauce and sometimes uh, (laughs) your downfall. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. This is... This has been kind of a debate that's been raging as as the more functional-oriented guys have kind of really been almost trying to take us back, right? Almost trying to say, you know, there's mathematic, mathematics behind all this. There's mathematical precision that you're losing in what you're doing, and there's efficiencies you're losing. Um, really come back to the functional way of doing things, right? Mm-hmm. I just, I just don't see it being, you know, kind of a dichotomy, kind of a Boolean. I see it as being... Right now, all of us developers who are working in OO, you know, since the 90s or, or even possibly earlier, are now learning to adopt some functional, right, some functional practices to avoid the very problems that he correctly points out. But the, the logical conclusion there isn't never write another class. <laughs> never write another helper class. Right. This um, is my point. Yeah. It's, it is when you sort of get locked up, when you get so, it's almost like you swung to the other side of the dogma a bit. Yeah. You traded one for the other. And, I mean, and I mean, calm and mid, the mid, there is middle ground in there as, as you can see uh, pretty clearly by this, not only the success of the platform, but just by some of the comments in the chat room. Well, and it's funny watching the comments in the chat room because there are, you know, I would argue that most of the people who listen to this are probably developers themselves, right? And, you know, Adam, again, keeps hammering on it's the right tool for the right job, right? Oh, oh, or functional. I even take that a step further, just looking at the developments in C Sharp and how about Swift, Mm. right? It's oh, oh, most of the time, Mm. especially when you're doing UI. And then it's, you know, functional when it's more efficient and less convoluted. Now, I, I, I really, really, really don't think it's one or the other and obviously react is making a horrible mistake that you're all going to regret but i don't care i'm learning rust and i'm gonna be happy that's all like that's all I well care. you're already like smoking weed in the woods i mean you're <laughs> and eating squirrels and eating squirrels <laughs> you're listen me, me and uh i believe his name was uh will who wrote this or who did the video i think we can both at least agree on Chris Fisher is lost. <clears throat> yeah, well, I'll be out there writing my Rust apps while you're learning Swift and Apple changes it right out from underneath your butt. We'll see what happens. You know, if that happens, you just need to tape me and just watch me, like, just break down. <laughs> That's a live stream I want to see. Yeah. <laughs> we go pay-per-view. <laughs> so here's the point, haters. This is a good video. Please don't troll him. He has actually a lot of pretty good videos. Um, and there really, really is value in, in his, um, his criticisms. Just the conclusion is, you know, crazy. Having said that, really, really don't write PHP. (laughs) 
I love that's your conclusion. <laughs> All right. Let me uh, tell you about something uh, that uh, I think is a secret sauce that uh, a lot of us should spread all over ourselves. That's DigitalOcean. Oh, baby. Yeah, man. My Linux infrastructure on demand. I'm going to share this secret with you. You know what? Use Coder Digital and get a $10 credit and try it out two months for free and see why it's the secret sauce. This is how you go big with an unbelievable value. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own rig on demand in less than 55 seconds. And for $5 a month, you're going to get 512 megabytes of RAM to 20 gigabyte SSD because they're all SSD. You guys. Seriously, it makes a huge difference. If you, I mean, seriously, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It makes it makes all of the difference. A CPU that's crazy fast and a terabyte of transfer are also included for five dollars a month. They got data center locations in New York. They got them in San Fran, where I was just at. Singapore, Amsterdam, London, in Toronto, up by Alan Jude, and the the one they have in Germany is fan freaking tastic because it is at like it, it is in a perfect spot for all of Germany's neighbors to get really fast access to their interface. Girl, let me tell you about their interface. It is fantastic. It is very intuitive and simple. And you're like, okay, great. They should be making it simple and intuitive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What the hell, everybody else? Why is it taking so long? And DigitalOcean comes along and they nail it. And not only do they nail it, like they are doing crazy cool stuff. They are they are doing crazy nice stuff that makes it easy to manage several droplets at once or to deploy applications. And then, as like sprinkles on top of all of that, they have fantastic fantastic tutorials. Here's one right now that they posted recently: how to work with Docker data volumes and Ubuntu 14.04. This is free knowledge for your face hole that you can just put right into your brain organ and be completely educated about a fantastic way to manage data volumes with Docker. And look at this stuff. It's really well written. All of the code sections are specifically labeled and colored. They have editors, their full-time job. All they do is work on this S. They help out community members who write this stuff by paying them, saying, thank you, that was quality content, and they got tutorials and all kinds of stuff. And then to really spice it up, they've also got a great API to manage all of this stuff, so there is a ton of really good open source code already written that you can just take. There's libraries for your favorite language, probably not Rust, that you can just use to interact with DigitalOcean droplets. There's apps for your phone, for your desktop. You could write your own with their straightforward API. You guys, it's sick. You got to go check it out. Use the promo code CODERDIGITAL. Get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean.com. Spin up your own infrastructure on demand. See what I've been talking about. If you're doing anything from an IRC bot to a Minecraft server to an own cloud box to the back-end infrastructure for your next big project, you can do it at DigitalOcean. And it rocks with their management system, their snapshots, their distros to choose from, even free BSD if you want to do that. They can do it. It's really cool. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code CODERDIGITAL to support the show. Keep us going and get yourself a $10 credit. That makes all the difference for us when you use the promo code CODERDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. You know, we've been uh, dancing around it this episode. But, sir, when you want to get religious... You must turn to the Rails Doctrine. Uh, Wait, before we do this. Yes, yes. (laughs) I think it's brilliant. Uh, Just a shout out to JetBrains. You guys need to sponsor the show. We're having like a JetBrains party in the chat room here. Really? Yeah? Okay, JetBrains, uh, talk to us. Coda Radio, JupiterBroadcasting.com. I'm I'm just saying because, you know, just saying. You want it, you Uh, want it, if you want, uh, if you want, you can email me, Chris at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Love me. 
and you can email me thick and ten inches. I, oh my god! Whoa, whoa! That's something else. That's for your other thing. That's your other oh, thing. That's, that's the other show I do. Webcam. Like yeah. It. All right, and that's really the money maker. So uh, we got all we got all dogmatic about uh, OO. Oh God. Yeah. I feel like I should twirl my mustache for this one. Tell me about the Rails doctrine. No, I feel like we should all make some Kool Aid and. So you know when you drink, a... drink, drink. <laughs> When you're a serious software, well, for, you know, let me give you some history first. Yeah, a okay. Personal history. All right, all right. For it's years, I've been fending off the Python developers of the world. Oh, sure. Yeah, as soon as you stepped onto these airwaves, yeah, that was a thing. <laughs> Telling them, no, Rails is not a cult. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't do things cults do, like have doctrines. Uh oh. Hmm. It was a sad, sad January for me. January, the new year of 2016, the Rails Doctrine goes live by David Heimheimer. Yeah, yeah, he's a DHH, the guy who actually invented Rails. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so if mm-hmm. anyone's going to have a Rails Doctrine, I mean, it's the right guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I, that's, I think, why it goes by DH, because uh, I don't know how you say that last name. So I obviously use Rails. Um, you do? We ship, we ship Rails a lot at Buccaneer. Okay. I guess if it's, your clients want it, right, you got to do it. Well, no, it's our default backend because we can get things done quickly. No, I knew that. I'm just teasing. Yeah, you knew that. So things have gotten a little scarier, though. Oh, yeah? Let's. What, Chris, did you read the Rails doctrine? Well, I like this part right here. Optimize oh. for programmer happiness. There would be no okay. Rails without Ruby, so it's only fitting that the first doctoral pillar is lifted straight from the core motivation for creating Ruby. Ruby's original heresy was indeed to place the, hap- to place the happiness of the programmer on a pedestal above many other competing and valid concerns that had driven programming languages and ecosystems before. I like that. that. Nice, I, like ha- right? I like being happy. Yeah, I like Gives that. Gives you the warm and fuzzies. Mm-hmm. It does give now, me the warm and fuzzies. fuzzies. What about the uh, number seven in your little list there? Progress over stability? <laughs> My list. <laughs> yeah, okay. Progress over stability. When systems have been around for more than a decade, like Rails has, their natural tendency is towards ossification. And there are millions of reasons why every change might be an issue for someone somewhere who developed on a past behavior or depended on a past behavior. And fair reasons those are, too, for the individual. But if we listen too closely to the voices of conservatism, we'll never see what's on the other side. We have to dare to occasionally break and change how things are to evolve and grow. If this evolution, it is this evolution that'll keep rails for its survival and prosperity in the decades to come. This is easy to understand in theory, but much harder to swallow in practice. This is not what I want to hear. So what they're saying is change, change, change for the sake of change. If it ain't broke, change it. So I have a theory on, on what this is a response to, but I just want to go over a few more of their points. Um, it, just want to say something. You know what I like about Rails? What it's a that? nice conservative choice. Get things done relatively quickly. <laughs> just want to throw it out there. What I know, found you know, attractive to this is exactly what he's saying. Is exactly the- <laughs> what you just said you want to change. Yeah. <laughs> so that, all right. So, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Chris, have you ever had some high-class Japanese dining that apparently I've never had called omasake? Whoa, No. Oh, it's in here. If you wouldn't mind reading us, the where do omasake. I find it? Where do I find about? Where do I find that? Do you know? Because the that, menu item number three, the I, menu, the is menu is omasaki, oma, oma, omakase, omakase. How do you know what to order in a restaurant when you don't know what's good? Well, you order what the hell will you tell us to? So sorry. <laughs> yeah, if you let the chef choose, you'll probably assume you'll probably assume a good meal even before you know what good is. That's omasake, a way to eat well that requires you neither to be an expert or in the cuisine. 
uh, or expert in the cuisine either. You can be blind and have luck at picking in the dark. For programming, the benefits of this practice, letting others assemble your stack, is similar to those yeah. we derive from a convention over configuration, but at a higher level, where COC is occupied with how we best use individual frameworks, Omasake is concerned with which frameworks and how they would fit together. Just give me that next paragraph real quick. This is at odds with the reserve programming tradition of presenting available tools as individual choices and how it bestows the individual programmer's privilege and burden of deciding. You know, a man I used to know called Lakotis of Borg had a very similar philosophy. Lakotis of Borg. Thank you. You will be assimilated. <laughs> yeah, the resistance is futile. <laughs> it's really for your benefit. Yeah, right. That's I, true. I just want to put this out here, though. Uh, Computer, this isn't what I wanted at all. The, I, I really want the people doing my back-end infrastructure to use blind luck while picking in the dark. That's, that's quality you can't buy. I, I can't even I, – I can't honestly – I can't. I can't rationalize that. I mean, I, as an option, that seems like a good option. As a doctrine, that seems like a dogmatic uh, way to just approach a problem because uh, that's not. The, there is no such thing as a one size solution fits all here, and that is a one size solution fits all. We pick for you. We choose for you. Now, how does that picking happen? How does that get influenced? How does that ever change? Oh, well, 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 okay, so. It, obviously, it's a you know a structure, right? With people on the hierarchy and the people above you in the hierarchy pick for you. It's a lot. But, but, like, but if uh, you don't know what you want to eat, don't go to the restaurant. Go to McDonald's. Well, let, let's let's take away their little restaurant uh, analogy here because you know I've gone to Japanese restaurants and I've ordered something called a love boat. They just bring you what the chef of the day feels like are his specials. Great. Um, when I, if I don't know, me, I just get chicken teriyaki. I mean, you know, like uh, seriously though, it's like this to me is a problem. I mean, I guess I I cannot fathom sitting down somewhere and not knowing how are you going to get a job done if you don't even know the tools you're going to use. I, this I, to me seems like yeah, a non-problem. I can't fathom charging someone tens of thousands of dollars and just being like, yeah, whatever they shipped in the binary or whatever they shipped in the gem spec is fine. I'll just let them decide. It's kind of upsetting me. This is actually yeah. legitimately getting me upset. So, okay. Are we good? Blue side? Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Deep breath. Deep breath. So, <laughs> when you see something like this... Wait, wait, wait. The, the Exalt Beautiful Code is pretty good, too. <laughs> Where's that one? Where's the Exalt Beautiful Code? Which one is that? I'm just going to read it for you. Exalt Beautiful Code. We write code not just to be understood by the computer or other programmers, but to bask in the warm glow of beauty. I almost thought this was a joke when I read it. Yeah. This is the scariest thing I've ever seen an open source project or at least. You know, Part of I, the beauty comes from no. these calls honoring the previous principles like convention over configuration. So part of the beauty. It, it, part of the beauty is convention over configuration, which convention over configuration is them choosing for you. Yeah, it, it it's submitting to the hive mind, right? It's all right. So this renegade Dave says this I, is hipster propaganda. <laughs> I just want to apologize to all the Python developers. Uh, it's been about two and a half years now. <laughs> Turns out I may have been wrong. Yeah, uh, you know, it really was a cult. That really wasn't normal Kool Aid. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, so does this actually have a a practical, impact? yeah, material impact? 
So, not right now, right? But obviously in the coming years, if they really keep to this. Maybe a fork? Who's going to – I mean maybe. People like you who are like, hold on. I want stability over crazy experimentation. Yeah, but Java does – like everything written in Java still exists. It's not Ruby. It's not Ruby though. Yeah, and the thing is, there's so much deployed Ruby right now, right? I mean, look no, at all no, those no, Rails no. apps so out there. Deployed Rails. That's really what I mean. Is look at all those this, Rails apps out there. This is what gets scarier. All kidding aside about them being crazy hipsters, although it's not really kidding when they write it themselves. But <laughs> whatever. We're just reading the words. <laughs> what is the migration story from older versions of Rails to this? Like Rails two yeah. to Rails three wasn't exactly a cakewalk. Wow. Um, and but that you know there were there were reasons, right? There were reasons that it made sense. Um, and Twitter is not still written on Ruby on Rails. They, they've they gone their own right, way. Right. They ended up using JRuby at one point. I don't no, even know. No, but a lot of sites are. I mean, a lot of things are. I mean, that's not. Yeah. So, so to be clear, and Azer, which sounds a lot like a Zazel, given this cult context, I'm very scared, in the chat makes a good point. Convention over configuration is why you were able to develop so fast. That yeah. was that is a good point. That was something like if if they if they focused if they laser focus on this, maybe they would have the best pre-selected, ready to go, out of the box solutions for you. That because this is their sole effort. I mean, this is what their, the primary bulk of their. I don't know. I can't. I can't put it together. See, I can't even justify it. There's some stuff in here that doesn't exactly make sense, like the exalt beautiful code. Um, you know, I agree. Right with items number two to a point, and number two. <laughs> number know, two, which is uh, isn't, isn't super applicable. It's like okay, we want to be a more open community. That's great. Yeah, but that sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, progress over stability actively scares me. Value integrated systems. Um. Okay. It seems like it's what they would like to see happen. Right. They'd like to see more usage in different ways. But okay. Exalt beautiful code is hipster nonsense. No one paradigm. Mm, that kind of conflicts with everything else you've said. Uh, the menu is omakase is... I mean, there is some sort of advantage in that in being like, if they're really just going to hand you basically a pre-built app and you go, great, but, you know, every high school kid is going to be competing with you now. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. that really is... This, you know, re- if I had to pick one... It's probably the most awful thing on this list. It's got to go to seven, I think. Progress over stability. Because, mm-hmm. you know, one thing Rails has had for it is it's not the new kid on the block, right? It's a pretty conservative choice. Which, I hate to break it to you guys, business folks love that. Like, that makes it easy to sell. Yep. Which makes it good yeah. for me. And, and it makes it easier to support. Right, and easier to support, and you know what? I have my gems. We have our gems that we always use, and we always use the same ones, and you know we know where we're going, and we have some pre-built stuff, and it's all kind There's of... There's a huge community, which is really nice, too, which makes building and, 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 and also troubleshooting much faster. So, yeah, so... That's why I think there'll be a fork. I have a theory. Hmm, what? I'm that, kidding. I don't think there's that, any, this really, Mike. This is just one. I mean, this is one opinion, right? I mean, this is the opinion from the most. Well, there's person, a lot of competition but. these days, and I think the problem is Rails is no longer the sexy thing, right? Okay. Well, Node is even becoming less of the new hotness and becoming a little more accepted. Do you think this is a reaction to that? I think this is a reaction to that. Yeah. Ah. Oh. That you know, makes sense trying, to me. Trying to be cutting edge again, but mm-hmm. why? 
maybe they're trying to compete on philosophy and uh, and uh, you know the community stuff. Now it's like now we're going to step it up here. We're stepping it up as as to, to fill out the picture of Ruby that to make it maybe more attractive to some. You know, I think they feel like they've lost mindshare, but I don't think that's super relevant because as someone in the chat points out, you know, there's a lot of Rails jobs right now, right? You, yeah, they, are, yeah. Rails reached that point that uh, there's going to be work. <laughs> there's going to be work for a very long time. And yes, React is currently the new hotness, but it's terrible, so don't do it. Hmm. So we have uh, this uh, doctrine obviously linked in the show notes if you guys want to read it. That's interesting. Kind of leaves me a little spooked. I guess that's the way to put it. It leaves me a little spooked. So we – can I jump to something else? Yeah, I'm ready. I am ready. All right. So I have an app code review, and someone in the chat reminded me. I said we'd talk about Project Rider. We didn't hear back yet, which is – I don't know if you saw this, Chris. IntelliJ C-sharp cross-platform thing that they're doing. Ooh. Um, didn't hear about that yet. Ooh, look at my beautiful face. So we're going to have to postpone that till someone gets back to me with something that okay. I can actually look at. Okay. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah the basic idea there is – they're doing something to do development on C-Sharp on Mac and Linux in addition to Windows. looks very interesting. Obviously, C-Sharp is a great language. I might even be interested in that. But it's kind of a... They did a video. They kind of talked about it. Nothing is really out there. Um, so the app code review. And Chris, I got some a reply from a good, kind person over at JetBrains about app code. Oh, good. He was not happy with my review. Oh, <laughs> Oh, so I take it the review is a little hard. Well, I saw AppCode as a, a Xcode replacement, right? Something that those of us who are maybe a little frustrated with Xcode mm-hmm. don't, you know, might move to. Apparently, that's totally not the point anymore. They're just trying to be in addition to Xcode. Before we get into all that, it is awesome. It is great. The code refactorings are awesome. Code generation is great. It's exactly what you would expect from a JetBrains tool. You know, if you're familiar with IntelliJ and PyCharm, which apparently half the, half the uh, chat room is. I just don't understand why. I mean, even people in the chat room and people on Twitter were saying, oh, just use Xcode for the designer. That's when Xcode always crashes on me. You know, that this is, is the problem I'm trying to solve. But, but how how can JetBrains ever 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 produce a product that competes with Xcode ever? They can't. I mean, Apple Apple has such a tight like they have such a tight grip over that and and the end to end experience of that that there is there's there's no other there's no room there's no room there. They ha- JetBrains has to make it something that's complementary if it's going to get used at all at, at any large scale. Well, the problem with that then is what stops Apple from just, you know, copying JetBrains and getting oh, yeah. some of those better refactorings into Xcode? You know, like Sherlock? Yeah, of course that's yeah. going to if it's If it's a good idea, of course that's going to happen. That's how Apple rolls. That's, that is the fundamental risk of working in this space on the Apple platform, and you just have to keep ahead of Apple when they do that. Because really, of course, if Apple rips off a feature, it's going to be a simpler implementation, albeit more integrated, that will work for a lot of people, but people that need something more advanced will then need a tool like oh, AppCode. I, mean, I mean, even, you know, I've been using, uh, I'm sorry, AppCode a bit. You know, the code generation and refactorings are exactly what I've come to expect in IntelliJ, Android Studio, all that kind of goodness, right? Ruby Mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I don't mean to do. I don't mean to diminish the uh, the, the, the the JetBrains or AppCode. What I mean to say in this is that Apple controls that pipeline. It doesn't really matter 
how good or bad Xcode is or how stable Xcode is or isn't, there's no real competing with Xcode. See, I don't know. When AppCode first came out, and I know people are going to disagree with this, but it was true. They were trying to be a replacement, right? Now, they may say they weren't, but they really, really were. A lot really of things were. do that. A lot of things try that. A lot like, of things try that on the Apple platform for a while. They had, and I remember being in the beta, they had the designer built in, and you could literally do it soup to nuts from... Man, that'd be from, sweet. ...from data structure to UI in AppCode. Hmm. Okay. You can't now. I still think it's actually something worth using. I'm not sure... If I decided not to use it, but after writing Xcode all day, um, I'm sorry, working in Xcode all day on Sunday, I may change my Mm -hmm. mind again. (laughs) Only because there's a whole bunch of crap that I always have to write that needs to be generated, right? That I I really shouldn't need to write. Um, And I'm talking about things like, you know, protocol implementation, stuff like that. I just, and I, and and the conversation in the comment, I'm sorry to keep harping on it, it was productive, right? He has a point. Uh, the guy's name is, uh, I think, Adam from, or that might be. Chris, scroll down to the comments. Uh, you talking about the chat room there? Oh, you talking about in your blog? Or are you talking yeah, about in the, the oh. post? Oh, okay. Wanna, yeah, there's. Uh, which one are you looking for? I see Adam D and. Uh, uh, the, oh, you're uh, talking about probably Stains of La Dombrowski. Yeah, he's, he's got some great points, and you know, I'm going to give it another look with his usage model in mind. Yeah. So he says this is the product. He's. A, I'm a product manager in the AppCode yep. team in JetBrains. I saw your review and on Twitter, and I decided to answer some questions. Yeah. Makes sense. So, uh, let's just stipulate right that what I want I can't have. Still stand by the review because that is what I wanted. That's what I thought I bought. He says, uh, oh, okay. he, I would like to make a correct position, which is not really an easy app. Uh, app, case. Uh, app code is not a replacement for Xcode. For now, right. app code is a great addition to Xcode. We do not compete with it. Now, isn't that interesting? Yes. That's his opening I love line the with now, it. By the way, I love the for now. Just. Yeah, Xcode built that. its own developer community and its own developer infrastructure, and it's focused on supporting different platform versions, delivering better games, development features, different integrations, etc. In AppCode, our primary focus and our primary goal is code editing experience and smart code editing features. Here's the problem. The worst part of Xcode, um, and I will give you, and I was actually doing Android development today, is the freaking GUI designer, right? Um, it's bad on Android. I know that's not, I'm saying Android, because if you don't know, Android Studio is actually a version of IntelliJ, mm-hmm. but, which is also a JetBrains product. They really need to sponsor us. We've been talking about them the whole time. <laughs> I think even it's... when I'm using, even when I'm using, you know, Xcode, and I'm not talking about populating the UI with data. I'm talking about, like, constraints. That is the worst part of the development cycle for me. It's the most fidgety. You're just sitting there mm-hmm. like, oh, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Oh, let me look in the preview window. Oh, let me see. It's tedious. And I would even argue Android actually has a better system for it. You pop open the XML for the layout. You do it. And you know if you're reasonably experienced at it, you can always get the same uh, results, right? You don't have to fiddle as much. I maybe I just suck at using the storyboards. It's possible. <laughs> no, I've heard that before too. But you know, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think it's that. I, I don't know why no one will solve this. I mean, I've seen people use uh, projects like Mason to just go in and like you know they use their own like layout language. It's like a it's like a uh, I don't know if it's a domain specific language, but it's if it's not, it should be. <laughs> I mean, it looks pretty damn close, and it just does a layout like that. But then you have all this code in every freaking controller, every view file, 
I'm sorry, a view file that's just you laying out the screen. So I have two options, right? <laughs> I can I can do what I used to do before uh-huh. the storyboards existed, mm-hmm. which was pop open the XML mm-hmm. and screw with things that way mm-hmm. in the individual nib files, which Adam from Vancouver seems to be suggesting is the right choice. But then I'm giving up the storyboards totally, and I'm yep. giving up any advantage that I have by using storyboards, yep. which I'm still not sure that there's a huge advantage other than seeing the flow of your app. But once your app's too big and it doesn't fit on your 27-inch monitor, then there's no advantage. Makes for a fancy screenshot to send to the client. Yes, but it also <laughs> crashes all the time. <laughs> I mean, That's so freely. frustrating. Or I can I, – because I really don't think I can pop open a storyboard file and parse that, that XML file. So, Or I have to continue suffering – using the storyboards with app code on the side. So I don't have the answer. Maybe, I, I mean, if, if the answer is use the old nib files, you know, I did that for a long time and I'm totally happy with that as a solution. Um, hmm. Yeah. App code is not a replacement for Xcode. For now, app code is a great addition to Xcode. Don't you think it's telling that was his opening sentence to talk about app code right there? Well, he, he could have started. Yeah. He could have opened with, uh, you know, app code. Our primary focus with app code and goal is coding experience and editing experience. But it's not what he opened with. He said our primary uh, is not. His opening sentence was, "It's not a replacement for Xcode. It doesn't compete with Xcode. It doesn't compete with Xcode." Is literally what he says in there. We don't compete with it. I wonder if they got a. Uh, hi, JetBrains. This is Apple. No, I don't think so. I think it was just the you know the resource, <clears> and that's kind of what I talk about in the uh, in the post. Simply the resources required to try to do that were probably too much. Right? Yeah, I suppose they would be. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, that's the yeah, that taking now, on. Yeah. It, so I'm not closed minded and I'm a big JetBrain fan. So I'm going to take the AppCode challenge. The, <laughs> awesome. I'm going to do my coding in AppCode this week and I'm going to do anything else in Xcode. In fact, I, I don't have any Greenfield iOS stuff, but next time I do, I will purposefully avoid storyboards hmm. unless they really make sense which i don't, don't think they do and do nibs just to see if i can get away with editing them that way i love but, it i love it i'd be curious to hear how that goes you let us know i will indeed all right mr dominic well uh we had an email did we manage to get that working i don't i don't remember i, I, don't. I got an impacement for you okay oh, oh you did look at you what a boost what a boost. All right. Well, then let's cover that uh, before we get out of here. Uh, if you want to email us, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Coda Radio from the drop down. And then it gets sent to Mr. Dominic and I using uh, the magic of the Internet where we have robots established at different routers that uh, move things around for us. Uh, so uh, who did this come from? What was his name? Did you catch his name? Uh, I am double-checking his name. I think it's Wesley, though. Wesley writes in with a, a couple of weeks ago, I sent a rather lengthy contact form submission and an old job I left to go to my own and do some uh, consulting work on mobile app and web development. I just wanted to follow up and make sure it did uh, it did get to you guys. Maybe it's not super relevant info, but I thought I'd make some good feedback. Anyways, I'm happy to tell you I released my first Ionic application for iOS and Android, and it's officially in both the stores. woo it's a tool to convert between different number-based systems, but has some cool predictive algorithms, I wrote. I'm also happy uh, with how it's visually turned out. I think it looks pretty slick, and it's intuitive with a good design. Uh, it is a paid app, but I have provided a few promotional codes below if you guys, maybe Chris or Mike, want to download it. Uh, so there you go. It's pretty cool. He sent the links in the show notes, which we will have in that pastebin document. Thanks a ton, Mike, for talking so much about Ionic. Otherwise, this app wouldn't be in existence today. 
I'm already working on a few ideas I have. I do have another question, though. Is it fair game to post a link to my app in the Coda Radio subreddit? I'd like to do so, but I want to post it like that. So I'm reasonable. You know, maybe we should let that and just say, uh, just say, uh, you know, like in brackets, but like listener created or something at the end of the link. So we know that we're self-spamming. I don't want people spamming. I don't think we're going to get a lot of it. So I think it'd be curious. I'd be really interested to see what the uh, community's working on. Let's just make sure we flag it with like in a bracket at the end, you know, listener developed or something. And then uh, we just know that we're just letting people take a look at it. I think that'd be fine. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think that would be fine, right? Why not? Yeah, it's worse that can happen. Yeah. So, uh, should I take a look at the app? What do you think? Should I uh, pull it up here and I'll, I'll do the old uh, right click on link and go to, and we'll see yeah, how it looks. I, I did take a look at it. It doesn't look bad, actually. It does look nice. Look yeah, at that. It's an Ionic app, so of course it's awesome. <laughs> look at you. Uh, it's only ninety nine cents too. That's pretty cool. It's called B ten, or uh, and you can search Notice for base ten. Opened it in iTunes. Yeah, well, I figured it'd probably look better there. You want me to see how it looks? I bet That's it looks, a lot of math that I don't think I can do, though. Well, let me see how it looks in uh, Android. I bet, it looks, uh, I bet it looks very similar. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Oh, you know what? Android's got a uh, video. Okay, you know what? I'm going to admit I do like the way it looks better in iOS, but only because the corners are rounded. <laughs> look, see? Rounded corners on the dialog box there in this one, and square corners on the dialog box on this one. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That is a feature of Ionic, actually. You know what? I think that's pretty incredible. That's 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 pretty yeah, great. So, oh, someone's asking about the Tardisk review. Uh, me and Ange talked about it yesterday. I was having a little bit of issues, but I'm not sure if it's related to them. So, tell me about this. What is this? So, you remember the Tardisk? Yeah, right? the little expander thing that uses it basically makes it like a uh, like you have an effusion drive, but on an SD card in the side of your MacBook, right? So, I went ahead and did that, and I wrote a little review of it. Um, it was a very bad packaging process there. Really? It came in one of those brown, puffy U.S. Post Office sure, things. Sure, sure. It was, you know, the instructions were like looked like they were printed on the inkjet printer and folded up in the box. Okay. That's not, that's not a good start. Yeah. And it didn't go in exactly perfectly the first time, so I had to wedge it out. Ooh. Now, once you I, got it in, was it flush with the case? It is flush with the case. That's nice. So that's that's good. Yes. Um, I don't... So far, it's been stable. I did have one kernel panic, but again, I, I think I may have just left like Android Studio running, and then sometimes you go to sleep, things that, are and that's, it. that's a thing, huh? Yeah. And, and, um, and so it's using the built-in, I think, OS X volume management to essentially expand your internal SSD onto yeah. this external SD card, which must be connected over USB 3, I would imagine. I mean, I, that, that, no, it's USB 2. No. Yeah. So is this a problem? Does it, does it actually, can you, do you, do you perceive any performance? I don't perceive it. I, I've read a couple things where it seems like they use your storage first. And then move things off onto the other one. I don't know how true that is. Oh, well, that's how Fusion Drive does work, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's kind of like, you know, just stuff you don't access a lot. It throws onto the SD card. But but it could also just be expanding the partition across both devices, right? It could be just that it's making one large partition across two drives we don't really know do you there must be a way to tell you bet it bet i bet if you broke down to the command line or something there must be a way to yeah, tell there's but probably a way to see through i wonder why they don't that. clearly just stay i was just reading their specs on their website they don't have it they don't say yeah so even like the install process doesn't tell you what it's doing there's a whole lot of faith you're taking with these guys 
Do you suppose? Do you suppose you would buy it again? Like, is it? No. I well, a little unfair though, because I don't think I would ever buy another machine that was under spec like this one is. Mm, you know, do you remember? Do you remember the day when you spelled open up your laptop and put a new hard drive in it? And there was I even a period of time do. where you could put another hard drive in the optical bay. Yeah, those uh, were those were times that don't exist anymore. My first Apple laptop was a Pismo, and I could put a battery in it, and then I could pull out the DVD drive and put another battery where the DVD drive went or another hard drive. So I could have two batteries or two hard drives, and this was, you know, an Apple laptop. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, and I know, I know this is a point that is just not – I mean, I'm kicking a horse that is super, super rotten right now, but – my point is, when you have Core i7 CPUs and 16 to 32 gigabytes of RAM and high DPI displays, the really the only component for a lot of us that really needs to be upgraded anymore is the drive, and the machine works for years and years, especially with really fast SSDs. Yeah, that, that's kind of the problem I'm having. It's, um, you know, nothing's wrong with this machine other than the fact that the hard drive was getting full. And it's soldered into the motherboard. I believe it is, yeah. Yeah, that or is it's a not, but it's a huge pain in the ass to get out. And if you don't buy the right one, yeah, uh, apparently there are like major heat problems you can have. And I didn't want to deal with that, hmm. so it was either kind of you know replace it, which is just not something that makes sense. Well, partially because I I don't know if I would really I would almost rather get like a supplemental desktop PC at this point. Don't you funny. know, Mike? Uh, the cloud is going to solve all of this. Yes, the cloud has not solved any of it. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. But. Funny how that works, huh? All oh, right. Cloud. Well, coderadio.reddit.com is where you can go to submit content to this show or maybe plug your app that we can get. We might even take a look at it. But if you'd like to email us, coderadiojupiterbroadcasting.com or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Don't forget we're live on Mondays at noon. I think, what is that, 3 p.m. Eastern? JBLive.tv. That's right. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone, whatever crazy time that might be. We'd love to have you join us live next week. Mike, is there anything you want to plug as we wrap up here? Nope. Just go to uh, Buccaneer.io and DominicM.com for more interesting. Oh, I have a new Ionic tutorial on Buccaneer.io. Well, there you go. Check out that and also links to everything we talked about in the show notes today. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Code Radio. See you right back here next week. <laughs>